is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we bring you stories about everything here on this show. And sometimes we bring you your stories. And on this occasion, we're doing just that. This one comes from John Wolfe, a listener on our Boston affiliate, WNTN 1550 AM. John brings us back to the year 1978, after the Yankees' mind-blowing September comeback to tie the Boston Red Sox for the American League East title. The arch-rivals had to face each other again, this time for a one-game playoff. The Red Sox won a coin toss, and so the game would be in Fenway at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, as Boston has the smallest stadium in the major leagues. The chances that I would be able to get a ticket weren't even on my mind. All I wanted was a good seat to watch the game on TV. I didn't have a TV, so I went to a local bar, the Fathers 2 on Mass Ave, and settled in at 11 a.m. for a 1 p.m. game because I wanted to make sure that I had a good seat. Well, as the morning wore on, I realized I was surrounded by nothing but Red Sox fans, and they were a little belligerent. And I was pretty cocky back then, too. And I was giving it as well as I was getting it. But the thought hit me, I'm completely outnumbered. And everybody's drinking. And I should probably get out of here. And I thought, I'll walk down to Boston University and find some lounge with a TV where a bunch of New Yorkers would be. It'll be a much safer situation. I could have left 30 seconds earlier. I could have left 30 seconds later, but I didn't. I left when I left. And I had to walk through Kenmore Square, which was much closer to Fenway Park. And just as I was going through, just walking towards BU, my best friend saw me and called out my name. And he told me he was going up to Fenway Park and that his friend had a ticket for him, an extra ticket. And uh, he told me, come along. Come on up to Fenway. And I said, well, I was kind of depressed. I said, you're fr- happy for him, but I said, your friend's not going to have another extra ticket. And he said, oh, just come on up. If it doesn't work out, you can still always walk down to BU in five minutes and watch the game. So we walked up there, and it was a fascinating scene. The entire stadium was surrounded by guys in their early 20s, late teens like us, and not one ticket was for sale. We were there for an hour. We did not hear one scalper offering a ticket. And so finally, one o'clock comes along, and he says, come on, John, let's go down to uh, BU and watch the game. And again, we could have been walking up the street 30 seconds earlier or 30 seconds later, but we weren't. We were walking at that moment, and some kid on the street sees these two guys in suits and ties who looked in their 40s, which we thought of as old back then, walking towards the stadium entrance, And he said, you have any extra tickets? He might as well have said, do you have an airplane? And the gentleman looked at him, one of them, and said, yeah, I got two box seats. There was a commercial campaign back in the 70s for E.F. Hutton, the financial advisors. And in those commercials, there'd always be a crowd, and someone would say, what does your broker say? And the other one would say, And everything would go silent as everybody leaned in to see what E.F. Hutton would say. And that's what it was like. This crowded, noisy street all of a sudden got silent when the guys said, Yeah, I got two box seats. When E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. And the kid stammered. He goes, How much? 
And the man looked at him and said, make me an offer. By the way, face value back then was only $10 for a one-game boxing playoff ticket. And the kid froze. And I wish I could tell you it was me who gave the offer, but it was my buddy, and that was good enough. And he said, give you 20 bucks a piece. The guy looked at us. We looked clean cut enough, I guess. And he said, sold. We did the exchange right there, walked inside. The Star Spangled Banner was playing at that very moment. We walked up box seats behind first base for a playoff game, a one-game playoff game. I had never sat anywhere like that. And the whole time I was in Boston, I was always out in the bleachers. That's what I could afford. And it ended up being a game that many fans refer to as the greatest game ever played, the Bucky Dent game. Red Sox got a home run early from their future Hall of Famer, Carl Yastrzemski. Yanks had their super ace, Cy Young Award winner to be, Ron Guidry, who was on his way to his 25th win of the season against three losses that day. And Yaz Homer to put the Red Sox up. Now, I should mention that as crazed as Red Sox and Yankee fans were, my friend Rob, who I was with, is a diehard Red Sox fan. And nowadays, he's a season ticket holder. But he and I were both objective. And around the sixth inning, he said, Johnny, either way, either way, what a great game, either way. And it takes a real baseball fan before being a team fan, I think, to say that. And I, I just couldn't believe what was going on. It was just so great. Had an alarm clock suddenly rung and awoken me, and it was still the beginning of the day, and I was not at Fenway, and I was lying in bed. I would not have been surprised. I would have been very disappointed, but not surprised. Later in the game, the Yankees were rallying, or trying to, but they had their weakest hitter, Bucky Dent, up. He hit the famous Bucky Dent home run in what was to become the Bucky Dent game. Reggie Jackson homered for the final run, but the Red Sox never died. They got to the ninth inning. They got the tying run on third. They got the winning run on second. Goose Gossage was on the mound for the Yankees, another future Hall of Famer, and he's just throwing heat. And he later said that he was standing there thinking when the tying run was on third with two outs and the winning run was on second for the Red Sox with two outs, well, whatever happens is okay. Either we go on in the playoffs from here, or I'll be out on my mountainside home in Colorado at this time tomorrow. And through heat to Carl Yastrzemski back up. So he had two future Hall of Famers facing off. Yaz popped one up. I think it might have even been the first pitch on the third base side into foul territory. Greg Nettles put it away. Tying run on third, winning run on second. Game over. Yanks win by one. The Bucky Dent game. And I should mention, October 2nd, as it was, is also my birthday. And that is one of my American stories. And what a great story. And we want to thank John Wolf, And he's a listener again on our Boston affiliate, WNTN, 1550 AM. And again, send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and they'll make them to the air, too. We love the way the American people write and talk. John Wolf's story. His Boston Red Sox, New York Yankees story here on Our American Stories. If you enjoyed the story you just heard, give us a follow on Facebook or head on over to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for the newsletter so we can send you our best stories each week. More of Our American Stories after the break.
we continue with our American stories and this next story, well, it's close to our hearts because it's about radio, the golden age of American radio that lasted from the 1930s until the 1940s when radio was the primary source for news and entertainment for a country struggling with economic depression and then war. We like to go back and listen to these old broadcasts here on Our American Stories from time to time. Here's Jesse with the story of Tennessee Jed. Tennessee Jed radio program aired from 1945 to 1948 across the United States and was sponsored by Tip Top Bread. Here he goes, Tennessee. Get him. Got him. Dead center. That's Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed. Deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of enriched tip top bread. Tennessee was the deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the plains in the days of the early West, and he was a man who upheld the law. He wandered the Western Plains with his trusty squirrel gun and horse, Smokey, setting things right standing up for American virtue. During the capture of a big black mare as a fitting mate for his great horse, Smokey, Tennessee overhears a nefarious plot to overthrow the United States government by renewing the war between the states of the Civil War. This episode originally aired December 1945. Tennessee, I figure you're heading for Sonora and palaver with the six-gun deputy. You're forgetting, son. Six-Gun Deputy is now Sonora's new sheriff, having replaced Mortimer Jackson. Yeah, but it's going to take quite a spell to get used to calling him anything besides Deputy. Well, no matter what we calls him, I figure it's high time he's wised up on this here plan of starting war between the states all over again. You know, Tennessee, more you think about it, more likely it seems them no-goods we heard plotting on Dead Man's Plateau can do it. Does for a fact, son. There's a heap of unrest in Texas these here days. Yeah, Tennessee. When General Kirby Smith surrendered to federal forces, lots of his Confederate boys figured they should have kept on fighting. You're naming it straight, son. But that's all over, Tennessee. Texas is back in the Union. And war between the states is a closed book. Not to no goods what's hungry for power, son. What you mean by that, Tennessee? You see, Rod Boy, there's always unrest. If a body wants to stir it up. Even this late, there's enough to make it possible for a bunch of no-goods to start war between the states all over again. The way you lay it out, Tennessee, it listens like there's a good chance of government in Washington being overthrown. Listen, you can haul it. Mm, best way, I figure, Rod is turn the forces of law and order loose against them what's plotting against the United States. Meaning your first call is going to be on Sonora's new sheriff? Yeah, son. Because if need be, Sonora's new sheriff can get word straight through to the president. I'd better get Smokey rigged. Smokey's sure going to cut quite a figure 
rigged out in that new saddle, Tennessee. And his rider's gonna feel mighty proud of sitting in a rod. Easy, Smokey Feller. Easy, boy. Won't take you long to get used to your new rigging. There. Oh, look at that, Rod. I know, Tennessee. Saddle skirt fits Smokey's back so snug you don't hardly need to use a girth. Girth? You mean cinch, don't you, Rod? Well, girth and cinch is same things, Tennessee. Only here in Texas, we usually says girth. <laughs> Sides light as you, Rod. They's hardly needed no matter what you calls them. Anyways, that's quite a saddle, boy. I'm going to take mighty good care of her. You just take care of yourself, Tennessee. If and something happens to keep you from reaching the sheriff in Sonora, plot to overthrow the government just might work. Don't you worry your head about me, Rod Boy. I can promise you. I's gonna be mighty cautious till we puts the kibosh on this here plan to start war between the states all over again. You do that, Tennessee. Because if and anything goes wrong now... United States is a goner. Get up, Smokey boy. Goodbye, Tennessee. Goodbye, Rod. Come on, Smokey feller. Lay him down, boy. Lay him down. And such a disaster as a revival of the war between the states must be avoided at any cost. Tennessee races towards Sonora on his trusted Smokey to meet the sheriff. He hopes will avert a renewal of the war between the states. But his attention is drawn towards a suspicious-looking wagon coming his way. Up ahead, Smokey Feller. There's a heavy-loaded wagon coming in this way. There's something about them two fellers in it what I don't like at all. Ease up, Feller. Whoa, Smokey. Whoa, boy. Whoa. Whoa. Howdy, gents. You got freight for Circle S? This here look like a freight wagon? Well, now, wagon is resting kind of heavy on the springs, like is moving a heavy load. Stranger, you're a young man with a long life ahead of you, providing you keep your nose out of other folks' business. Now, just a minute, gents. Cutting across Circle S property is all right, providing the reason for crossing is honest. Drive on, Pharaoh. We got no time for palavering with this, Jasper. Get up, boss. Oh, whoa, whoa. I don't like having to cover you gents with my rifle. Oh, see here, you young whippersnapper. You keep your nose out of what's none of your business. That answer your question? Sort of, kind of squint, but not to my complete you satisfaction. Guns and ammunition. Enough for outfitting a small army. In all property, a United States government. Now you see, Tennessee. You satisfied? I like a heap of being squint. Because I got me a notion these here guns and ammunition was stole from the United States government as part of a plan to renew war between the states. Is Tennessee right? Let's see if by discovering the guns and ammunition, Tennessee has nipped in the bud the plot to overthrow the government. These guns and ammunition I'm pretty confident were meant for taking over the U.S. government You heard, Miss Squint. 
And you too, Pharaoh. This here guns and ammunition has been stolen from the government. What are you doing with them? That's our business, Tennessee. And none of yours. If and these stole guns and ammunition is part of the plan for starting war between the states all over again, gents, I'm making it my business. Now, now just where'd you get such a ridiculous notion, Tennessee? Is it a ridiculous notion, Pharaoh? Get him, Pharaoh! <laughs> well, nice work, Pharaoh, nice work. You know, that Tennessee turned just at the right time for your gun butt to connect just right with his skull. Yes, Quint. This here hombre knows too much. Maybe so it'd be a good idea if he never comes to. There's plenty of Jaspers like to be in our shoes right now, Pharaoh. Yes, Squint. I'll bet there is. Because the easiest way to kill a man like Tennessee is when he's asleep or like he is now. Unconscious. Well, how about that? For the first time ever, Tennessee Jed is unconscious at the mercy of two unprincipled thugs. And that's just about how every episode of the program ended, with a cliffhanger that just makes you want to hear the next episode. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. Here he goes, Tennessee. Get him. Got him. Dead center. That's Jed Sloan, Tennessee Jed. Deadliest man with a rifle ever to ride the Western Plains. Brought to you every day, Monday through Friday, by the bakers of Enriched Tip Top Bread. And I'm sitting here like all of you going, what the heck happens next? We gotta know. Old school radio. Every once in a while, we just like doing a blast from the past. American history on the airwaves. And thanks to Jesse, as always, for the stories he provides. Tennessee Jed, here on Our American Stories. back here on Our American Stories, and this next story is about a television show, but not just any TV show. In its heyday, All in the Family was watched by nearly one-third of all Americans. Before its last of nine seasons and 212 episodes, the show delivered six of the top 50 highest-rated TV programs of all time. On this day in 1971, all in the Family first aired. All of our This Day in Histories, by the way, are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. From Television City in Hollywood. Boy, the way Glenn Miller played. Songs that made the hit parade. Guys like us, we had it made. Those, Those were the, the days. days. 
It was doomed from the start. The social satire television show called All in the Family was seen as too abrasive and failed to pull any punches. Carol O'Connor played the blue-collar bigot Archie Bunker. The show's creator, Norman Lear, inclined O'Connor for the combination of bombast and sweetness the actor exuded on the big screen. O'Connor believed in the character, but not in the show's chances to succeed on television. Here's Rob Reiner. We knew he had a good show, but we figured it wouldn't last very long because it was so special, it was so different. Um, I remember Carol saying, you know, we'll probably do four episodes and then we'll probably get thrown off the air because nobody's going to sit still for this. When Norman Lear invited Gene Stapleton to read for the Edith role, Archie's wife, she couldn't get over the script. This on TV? I was terribly amused by it, by its reality and honesty and humor. CBS signed on for the pilot episode. O'Connor and Stapleton were joined by Sally Struthers, who played Archie's daughter, Gloria, and Rob Reiner, who played Mike Stivick, Gloria's husband. Rob had grown up surrounded by his comic genius father and his friends. Men like Mel Brooks, Sid Caesar, Dick Van Dyke. Says Rob, that was my kindergarten, and they were my teachers. Norman Lear, a friend of Rob's father, Carl, had known Rob for over a decade. There had even been one day when Lear stopped by Reiner's house that Rob made him laugh with a routine about cheating at Jack's. Noted Lear to Carl Reiner, you've got a funny kid there. Rob's father responded, get out of here, he's not a funny kid. Years later, Carl Reiner expanded on this exchange. Oh. I knew the kid was funny. What I didn't know until a long time later was that he had talent. On the evening of January 12th, 1971, as soon as Hee Haw went off the air, All in the Family made its television premiere. This is what America heard at the start of the program. Warning. The program you are about to see is All in the Family. It seeks to throw a humorous spotlight on our frailties, prejudices, and concerns. By making them a source of laughter, we hope to show in a mature fashion just how absurd they are. Here's Sally Struthers. I heard that they manned all the CBS stations across the country with extra operators to take all the angry phone calls that were going to come in from people seeing the show, and it didn't happen. They got a lot of phone calls, but people were calling in and saying, What was that? Is that coming back? In the weeks following All in the Family's debut, CBS initiated and financed an opinion poll. The majority of the people questioned, including minority group members, indicated that they hadn't been offended. People who saw it discussed it. People who hadn't discussed it anyhow. Bunker gives conservatives a bad name. Stivic gives liberals a bad name, were the typical responses. Here's show creator Norman Lear. The stern warning that began our show tonight was used on the first six episodes of All in the Family. Nervous CBS censors required us to warn viewers lest they be offended by the bunkers. They didn't have bothered. Hardly anyone watched. It was in the summer reruns that you found the show and it caught on. By the second season, All in the Family had become a certified hit. In May of 1972, All in the Family swept the Emmy Awards. 
Johnny Carson dubbed the ceremonies an evening with Norman Lear. Here's a clip of Archie Bunker and his son-in-law, Mike Stivick, sparring. Oh, no. Oh, no. I'm going to sue that guy. First thing in the morning, I'm going to get myself a good Jew lawyer. <laughs> Archie, do you always have to label people? Why can't you just get a lawyer? Why does it have to be a Jewish lawyer? Because when I'm going to sue a neighbor, I'm going to get a guy that's full of hate. <laughs> What's in the name, anyhow, huh? In my day, nobody went around calling themselves Chicanos, Mexican-Americans, Afro-Americans. We was all Americans. After that, if a guy was a jig or a spick, it was his own business. Archie's a World War II veteran turned loading dock union worker from Queens, New York. In his eyes, he's no bigot. A bigot spouts mindless prejudice, whereas Archie believes that he's thought things through that he's simply aware of the rules ordained by nature to make some people sluggish and other people cheats. Besides, to Archie, a racist would only use negative labels, while he's the first to declare that the sharpest lawyers are Jews. At his core, Archie's not prejudiced. He hates everyone. In the complete book of nerds, author Bob Stein lists Archie's wife's name as Dingbat. Her nickname as Edith Bunker, and her hobby as taking abuse. Here's Archie and Edith. Archie, I'm sorry. I thought I was doing a good thing. Oh, sure, good thing. That's you all over. We're always doing good. Edith, the good. You never get mad at nobody. You never holler at nobody. You never swear. No nothing. You're like a saint, Edith. You think it's fun living with a saint? It ain't. It ain't at all. Look at this, you you don't even cheat to win, you cheat to lose. <laughs> I mean, Edith, you ain't human. <laughs> That's a terrible thing to say. I'm just as human as you are. Prove you're just as human as me. Do something rotten. <laughs> Norman Lear gave Gene Stapleton the key to Edith's character. That Edith no longer hears what Archie is saying, having tuned out years ago. So it's no wonder Edith shuffles the way she does. Her gears are permanently out of whack from a lifetime of turning the other cheek. Here we are! Ah, here. Oh, thank you, Mrs. Bunker. Ah, thanks, Edith. No, that's all right. I can, I can say, Mr. Davis, Edith, get out of here. Here's Gene Stapleton and Carol O'Connor on the show's secret for success. I feel there was a moral statement made almost every week. But you see, it, number one, it was entertainment, and it was comedy. You can reach people through comedy. We were kidding uh, American attitudes, and uh, the, uh, the artistic term for that is satire. Archie's son-in-law, Mike, is an atheist who renounced his own Catholic baptism long ago. Archie believes in Catholic infant baptism so much that he kidnaps Mike's son, Joey, and baptizes his grandson himself. Now, this here, Lord, is my little grandson, Joe. See? Now, his parents, they don't care if he's baptized because his old man is a dopey atheist. So, they're going to do it here while we get the chance, you know? I don't want my little grandson growing up without religion in this rotten world of yours. <laughs> Intense a friend of their Lord be. We all know you did the best you could with only six days to get it all together. 
Now, don't worry, Joey, because this ain't going to make you holler, see? Like that other thing they done to you. <laughs> this is Joseph Michael Stevick here, a Christian. Joseph Michael Stevick, I baptize thee in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now. I hope that took, Lord, because they're going to kill me when I get home. And when we come back, more on the story of All in the Family. American stories and we're in the middle of a story on the hit television show All in the Family because on this day in 1971 it first aired and all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us again as always by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Let's return to Greg and the rest of the story of All in the Family. Although claiming to be a Christian Archie's God and his theology are made in Archie's image over the world they celebrate the birth of that baby and everybody gets time warp and wait now if that ain't proof that he's the son of god then nothing is <laughs> and he made us all one true religion he did christians which he named after his son christian <laughs> well, christ for sure Here's Archie and Sammy Davis, Jr. I think that, I mean, if God had meant us to be together, he'd have put us together. Well, look what he'd done. He put you over in Africa, he put the rest of us in all the white countries. (laughs) Well, you must have told him where we were, because somebody came and got us. Archie's patriotism and American history are also made in his image. That ain't the American way, buddy. No, sorry. Listen here, Professor. You're the one that needs an American history lesson. You don't know nothing about Lady Liberty. Standing there in the hub with her torch on high, screaming out to all the nations in the world, send me your poor, your deadbeats, your filthy. And all the nations sent them in here. They come swarming in like ants. Your Spanish PRs from the California. Your Japs, your Chinamen, your Crouch and your Heaps, and your Lincoln Spanish. All of them come in here, and they're all free to live in their own separate sections. Where they feel safe, and they bust your head if you go in there. That's what makes America great, buddy. Chicago-born Mike Stivick married Archie's daughter, Gloria, who works full-time while her husband is enrolled in college full-time. Mike is a jobless, peace-marching sociology major of heavily left-wing persuasion, and they both live with Archie and Edith in Queens. Mike's friends frequently seem to appreciate Gloria more than he does, 
Indeed, in many ways, he treats Gloria just as Archie treats Edith, with the difference that maybe he'll kiss her in the living room. Mike is of Polish descent, sports long hair and a parted Prince Valiant cut and a mustache, which Rob Reiner grew at 24 to look old enough to get the part of Mike. You know something, Mr. Bunker? At first I thought I misjudged you, and I was right. I did misjudge you. You're a lot more ignorant than I thought. Did you hear what he called me ignorant? Well, let me tell you something. Sticks and stones may break my door, but you are one dumb polar. The jobless Mike doesn't consider that Archie has lived firsthand a life he only reads about in sociology books. Where did he get all these ideas? Oh, from the College of Hard Knocks, sonny boy. I've been everywhere the grass grows green. I've seen everything there is to see. I know people. The reason you don't know nothing about people is you always got your big mouth open. You're never willing to listen to nobody. How do you do, sir? May I have a moment of your time? No. The relationship between Archie and Mike was written by Norman Lear to reflect his relationship with his own father. In fact, Lear's father also referred to Norman as dead from the neck up, an expletive which Lear has Archie hurling at Mike as early as the first episode. Let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. <laughs> What Archie would love to see, most of all, is Mike working. So, adding insult to injury, when Mike inherits money, he decides to donate it to George McGovern's presidential campaign instead of toward repaying Archie, who has been subsidizing his lifestyle, and then pontificates that Archie doesn't do enough for his fellow man. And since Archie doesn't choose to give more of his money away, Mike advocates a socialist system that will call him nasty names and give it away on his behalf. But through all of the wincing and laughter, we also learn something. We learn how to be less hateful and bigoted towards those who are hateful and bigoted. The episode Two's a Crowd chronicles the events of Archie and Mike getting locked in a storeroom overnight. When escape seems futile, the two turn to sharing a bottle and a large blanket as the episode slowly turns into an incredibly honest, personal look at who these two men are. This episode was Carol O'Connor's favorite. Here's a clip. Did you ever think that, that possibly your, your, your father just might be wrong? Wrong, my old man? Don't be stupid, my old man. Let me tell you about him. He was never wrong about nothing. Yes, he was, Arch. I... My old man used to call people the same things as your old man. But I always knew he was wrong. So was your old man. No, he was. Yes, he was. Your father was wrong. Your father was wrong! Don't tell me my father was wrong. Let me tell you something. (laughs) Father who made wrong your father the breadwinner of the house there a man who goes out and busts his butt to keep a roof over your head and clothes on your back you call your father wrong hey hey your father your father that's the man that comes home 
bringing you candy? Father is the first guy to throw baseball to you and take you for walks in the park, holding you by the hand. My father held me by the hand away. My father had a hand on him now. I'll tell you, he busted that hand once, and he busted her on me to teach me to do good. <laughs> My father, he shoved me in the closet for seven hours to teach me to do good. Because he loved me. He loved me. Don't be looking at me. Let me tell you something. You're supposed to love your father. Because your father loves you. But how can any man that loves you tell you anything that's wrong? As Rob Reiner's father, Carl, remarked, a few would deny all in the family reshaped the face of television. For years, Every new sitcom on the air was either liberated by or reacting to it. It's the Jeffersons, Archie. Who are the Jeffersons? Oh, wait a minute. Hold <laughs> You don't mean them new people that moved in down the front? Yeah, Lionel's oh. family. They're really very nice people, oh, Archie. Oh, yeah, very nice. They're wonderful people. They're lovely people, Lita, but they are also colored people. <laughs> Better hold it there, Daddy. Now, listen, little girl. Been around a lot of places. I've done a lot of things. But there's one thing Archie Bunker ain't never going to do, and that's break bread with no jungle bunnies. <laughs> Within a few years of its debut in 1971, All in the Family, together with its spin-offs and godchildren, The Jeffersons, Maud, Good Times, and Sanford and Son, reached 120 million Americans, more than half the nation's population. All in the Family frequently earned the accolade of National Theater, and its best scripts fall not an iota short of national literature, while Archie has joined the pantheon of American folk heroes. For his portrayal of Archie Bunker, Carol O'Connor earned more awards than any other actor ever received for a single TV characterization. When the Guinness Book of World Records recognized All in the Family as commanding TV's highest advertising rates, the series became known as the Super Bowl of sitcoms and Archie as the most expensive racist on television. Any topical program runs the danger of quickly becoming dated. All in the Family escaped that fate. So strong is the story, so real are the people that the episodes work even when occasional references elude the audience. It is why Archie's chair, Edith's chair, and Archie's beer can occupy a place of honor on display at the Smithsonian Institution's National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. They are as much a part of our national heritage as Abe Lincoln's stovepipe hat and George Washington's wooden teeth. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories.
great job on that as always, Greg. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org. That's ouramericannetwork.org. So many stories about our nation's past, our arts, our culture. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories that touch on every part of life. And one theme that cuts across all of them is innovation. And today we're joined by Tim Harford, author of a great book entitled 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy. And we're going to dig into a few of those inventions now. Tim, let's start off with the story of the plow. You said it ultimately made our modern economy possible. How is that? Well, it's a wonderful example of how technology has profound effects on society. We think about technologies as solving problems. So with the plow, what's the problem? I want to grow crops. Uh, the soil's not very fertile. I need to break up the surface of the soil. So you know, I, I invent the plow. But of course, it, it, that's just the beginning. Uh, then all the social changes begin. So with the case of the plow, it created uh, a surplus. It created a harvest that you could store somewhere at the, the end of the year, uh, which meant uh, you had an incentive to form up in big gangs. These days we call them armies and go and take the grain in someone else's barn. Um, it meant that you could support uh, a uh, an elite, um, people who thought, uh, who planned, bureaucrats, accountants, priests. Uh, it, it meant you could support cities. And with cities, of course, comes the whole of civilization. So uh, you could really say this is where the whole thing started, whether, whether you like it or not, with the plow. And whether you like it or not is true, because some people don't like it, and lots of people do. Let's talk about barbed wire. You say this, there was a reason that American farmers were so hungry for barbed wire. A few years earlier, in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln had signed the Homestead Act. Talk about that. So that act said anybody who wants to move to the, to the West, to the Midwest, and to put up a fence and to farm some land for five years... Um, men, women, freed slaves, anyone who, who wants to do that, that land will be theirs at the end of a few years. So it seems like a huge opportunity. The only trouble is when these new settlers get to the, the great American prairie, they realize there is no wood, or certainly there's not enough wood to spare putting up miles and miles of fences. And so if they want to claim land uh, and in particular to keep off these tough longhorn cattle from trampling all over the place. They need a source of fencing. So this is one of those situations. Sometimes people invent things and they never know what, what it's going to be used for. So the classic is the laser. 
Lasers invented, and it's a solution looking for a problem. Complete op- opposite with barbed wire. Everybody knew what the problem was. It's how do we make inexpensive fencing that doesn't require a lot of wood? And there were huge efforts. Lots and lots of patents for different fencing techniques emerged from the, the American Midwest at the time. Lots of people trying to solve the problem. Uh, the American government issuing reports saying, we need fencing material. And then about 10 years later, J.F. Glidden of DeKalb, Illinois, produces this patent for this technology. And it, it is the first recognizably modern barbed wire where you, you have a little twist. You have two, two pieces of wire together. You twist one around the other. Uh, in order to keep these barbs secure so they don't slide up and down the wire. And that's really barbed wire as we know it even today. And it was immediately a sensational hit. So within a few years, um, the the factories of, of Glidden and his associates were producing over 250,000 miles of barbed wire each year. Uh, but as with the plow, it created winners and it created losers. It completely reshaped the American landscape. And it was just one of those way, the things where the president, Abraham Lincoln, had granted people property rights. And yet those property rights are really no good unless there's some practical technology for defending the property rights. And it was barbed wire. Let's talk about Google search. That's number five in your book. And by the way, we're talking to Tim Harford, his latest book, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern Economy, Google Search. Well, it would be impossible to leave it out, wouldn't it? it it's bec- I was trying to describe to my wife the other day, I was using a search engine on um, a newspaper website, and it, it wasn't working very well. Uh, and I was saying, oh, Google works so well. This search engine's so bad, I can't Google anything. So even when I was trying to describe the process of searching for something not using Google, I was still using the verb to Google. So it's, it's, just, um, it's just transformed the way that we access the Internet, uh, that we access the World Wide Web. I'm old enough to remember the world before Google and the Internet before Google. And you, you would discuss strategies for how to find things. So you would say, oh, if... Um, if you know, for example, that a particular person has been working on a problem and you want to find some information, if you search for their name, that might help because it's completely useless to search for an actual phrase or a bit of content. That's never going to work. But maybe if you search for someone's name, when Google came along, suddenly you would type stuff into the search bar and you would actually find it. And that has been completely transformative. And of course, it continues to, to reshape the economy because now it's become more and more local. These search engines, they're on our phones. Um, you're, you're, so your attention is being directed. You, you want to search for a place to have a drink nearby. Um, you, you've been locked out of your house. You need to find a locksmith. Google is trying to solve these problems, sometimes with great success, sometimes not. And enormous amounts of, inf- uh, of uh, effort are devoted to where you come on that Google search ranking. If you're on page three of the Google search ranking, you're absolutely nowhere. So it, it's, it, it's an insight into the way that um, a particular technology can unlock a whole world of information out there. And you've been listening to Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy. Go to ouramericannetwork.org 
and hear all that we do as it relates to authors. And we've done a good 60 interviews with some of the best writers in this country, everyone from David Mamet to, of course, the great David McCullough. Tim Harford, author of 50 Inventions That Shape the Modern Economy, here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and now it's time for our American Dreamers series and we've done a whole bunch of really good ones folks from Jack Marucci who created a baseball bat for his boy and it turned into well a force in the baseball bat industry uh, straight up to Bernie Marcus's story and he's the founder of Home Depot he was fired at the age of 49 from a former job had an idea about this new company which would become this gigantic iconic company also, Mario Andretti's story, which is just terrific, about his life, not only in racing, but in business and creating this monstrous enterprise, this powerful force in the racing business called Andretti Racing. And so many more. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and look for our American Dreamer series. And if you have an American Dreamer story, send it to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And again, all of our material sponsored by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And we now bring you the voice and story of one of their members, one of Job Creators members, Gary Rabine. I truly believe that the best entrepreneurs in the world usually start with nothing. They don't inherit millions of dollars. Usually they have an idea, they started with nothing, they take risk, and they probably go back to nothing often. Four or five times they get knocked in the teeth, they lose everything, they get back up because nothing isn't that terrible for them. They've been there before. And I know plenty of people that start with a good amount of money and they lose it and they can't get back up. I mean, they never knew what it was like to have nothing and it's earth shattering for them. So the blessing I had was, you know, we didn't have a lot and when I started business, I started with a few thousand bucks and I can go back there anytime. I enjoyed the place I was in life then and a few other times in my career that I got knocked in the teeth and really almost bankrupt. And every time it happened, I'd look at my wife. I said, it's looking pretty bleak. You know, we had a lot of dough, and now it's not looking so good. And she would go, uh, well, you know what? We can always buy that same house you bought before we got married. It's a $70,000 house. I'll remodel it. We still got our faith, and we've got our family, and that's all we need. And so we got down to nothing a few times. I counted 25 businesses over the last 20 years that we started, and a bunch of them didn't work out. And fortunately... We've always had something going on that did pretty well. I run to people that I haven't seen in a long time or they don't know me that well, and they say, boy, you got a horseshoe in your butt. Everything you do turns to gold, Rayvine. Well, they're, they're only seeing the things that look like they're doing pretty well. But either way, that's okay. I think the most successful people in the world are people that know what it's like to have nothing, so they're able to take risk. So I think it's a blessing. 
We grew up in a house, we had six kids in our family. My dad worked in a factory and did side jobs. He started a tree business, selling firewood, and started doing landscaping, and my dad was a jack of all trades. He was a workaholic. When he married my mom, she had three kids already. Then they had three more kids within about a four or five year period after that. So they had six kids as a very young guy. He was only like you know, 25 years old maybe with six kids, right? So at that point, he knew he had some mouths to feed. So he was a very uh, thrifty guy, one of those hardest working, toughest guys you'll ever want to know. So he taught us work ethic in a big way. My brother and I were the youngest of six. I had four older sisters. All my sisters worked just as hard as we did. They cut trees, they split firewood. They were built like bodybuilders. These girls were tougher than any guys I knew. I was embarrassed. I, they used to beat up on me all the time and throw me around. I was like, God, I'm getting beat up by, by girls all of Every day of my life, these girls are pushing me around. I felt like kind of a wimp. Then I got to high school and realized my sisters could kick the crap out of... Most of the best wrestlers were afraid of my sisters. <laughs> so I didn't feel so bad, and I ended up being a pretty decent wrestler myself, because I got pushed around a lot. Anyway, we lived in this house in Fox Lake, Illinois, and the chain of lakes is dominant around Fox Lake. These lakes back then were shallow, septic-infested lakes. There wasn't sewer or anything around these lakes at the time. And the soils didn't allow, like, your septic to filter down into the aquifer like good soils allow. And my dad was really sensitive about the septic field being overloaded. So if it was above 60 degrees outside, we were bathing in the chain of lakes, the four-foot mud-bottom lake. On a clean day, you might, if you put your hand under the water about six inches under, if it didn't rain in a while and it was a nice sunny day, you might be able to see your hand if it's six inches under the water if you're lucky. But most days there's a green film on the top of these lakes. There's anywhere from a quarter inch to a half inch thick. So, but my dad believed that water was clean enough and we weren't going to stress out that septic system putting all that shower water in the septic. So from about 10 years old on, if it was 60 degrees or more, he had a bar of soap at the end of the pier and a bottle of suave shampoo. And the nice thing about ivory soap was it floated, so you wouldn't lose it, that murky water, right? But bottom line is, we didn't take a lot of baths, so maybe, maybe once every couple weeks in that chain of lakes. <laughs> the crazy thing is, uh, we used to think we were stark white kids, my brother and I, and we thought we were pretty tan in the middle of summer, but there was a scuzz built up, in our, built up on our arms, around our necks and stuff. And we didn't know why friends or neighbors, their parents, didn't want their kids hanging out with us. We thought we were pretty good kids, right? But for some reason, in the back of our mind, we knew that their parents were telling their kids, don't hang around those Rabine boys, they're bad news. <laughs> but either way, it was the way we grew up, right? And I think we ended up to be tougher for it. And guess what? I don't think I get sick as much as most people. I think we, we built up a pretty good immune system. <laughs> 15 years old, we moved to a new place. My dad needed more acreage. He needed some land to put some dirt on because he's piling up dirt in our front yard and wood and it looked like Sanford and Son. We had all this stuff in our front yard, a little aisle going down to the front door of the house. It was a little bit embarrassing. You know, I actually told my dad that one day. and he, I know I bothered him and I said it. But I said, Dad, I don't want to bring friends home. It's embarrassing. They laugh about our house being like Sanford and Son. Yeah, what are you talking about? That's money. That's how you make money doing all that. And I said, yeah, I, I get it, Dad, but uh, still, it just, just doesn't look good. And we were in a normal subdivision, like you know, 50-foot wide lots. He was a tough guy, so people didn't gripe about him too much, or he would confront him. So they let him do things he wanted to do. But finally, he moved to a place in the boondocks with like 10 acres and had area to put dirt and all that kind of stuff. So my brother and I were in the bathroom looking at this house, and my brother and I just eyeing up this bathroom, a nice tub, you know, and a nicer bathroom, a little bit bigger. And my dad's looking over his shoulder, and he says, what are you guys looking at? And I said, well, damn it, we have a pretty nice tub here. He goes, this is like May, he goes, 
Are you kidding me? It's 65 degrees out. He goes, we got a creek. There's a creek only about 100 yards away from here. It borders our property. A bar of soap and a bottle of shampoo is waiting for you. He goes, get your ass down there and take your baths if you're going to take one. So sure enough, we did. Two months later, my brother and I are out there bathing. And it's a really hot day. You know, it's like 100 degrees out. And we're cleaning up after working that day. All of a sudden, my brother says, Gary, there's, there's, there's something floating down the creek there. It looks like... Uh, it looks like cow crap. And you know, we were kind of hillbilly kids, so we didn't say crap. My dad swore a little bit, and we swore a little bit for kids, but he said, it's cow crap, right? And I said, ah, come on, John, it can't be that. Boy, I said, boy, it does look like it, but, but, but it's awful big, you know? It's awful big to be crap, you know? And he, and he said, I think, I, think, I think it is. It looks just like a, you know, big turds, you know? And I said, ah, oh, come on, I can't. We go up to it, and we're sticking it with a stick and stuff. Boy, it does kind of look like it. We stomp up to the house. I said, Dad, we're not taking our bass down there anymore. We think there's crap floating down the creek. And he said, oh, come on, don't be, don't be ridiculous. So he walks down to the creek. He looks up and down the creek, and he looks up at the bank on the creek, and he says, that's not crap because that's just peat moss eroding from the banks. That's all that is, it's peat moss. So he's our dad. We believe him, right? you got to believe your dad. So for the next four years or so, we continue on. And you know, we're swatting these things by us while they go by. Hot days usually. Only the hot days that you see these things floating down. And 19 years old, I get home working on a Sunday. and got a voicemail. A friend of mine wants to know if we want to go canoeing. I said, you know what? I think I want to do that. My dad listens to the voicemail. Hey, I think I'll come with you. we got two canoes. I said, uh, all right. Sounds good. Let's do it, Dad. Come on with us. And a couple hours later, we're coming about a mile north and west of our house, and, and I make the corner. We're racing. We're going as fast as we can. Myself and my buddy are number one. We're in the front, and everybody's behind us. I'm feeling pretty good and kicking their butts, right? And a lot of competitive guys, including my dad. And we turn a corner. All of a sudden, there's like a 100 head of cattle in the creek all over the place. And all I'm thinking about is how we get around these things, man. They're, they're huge. They're all over. There's hardly any room, right? So we get up next to them. We're trying to navigate around them. All of a sudden, they're dropping bombs everywhere and I'm looking at these things as they're dropping them and I'm saying I run I go I figured it out I look back at my dad and said dad we told you that was crap falling down the creek all those years and he gets up next to him he goes boy I guess you were right any class but again I think I think all that you know helps our immune system out right so we didn't bathe we didn't have to bathe in the creek anymore after that well there you go and when we come back more from Gary Rabine this unique unique voice one heck of a story an American dreamers story and they come from everywhere our American dreamers more of Gary Rabine's story after these messages
And we're back here on Our American Stories and Our American Dreamers series and Gary Rabine's story. Let's pick up where we last left off. My dad told me I was too stupid to go to college. And he said, you don't need college. You're too stupid, you know. I believed I could probably, right? But I was like, you know, you might be right, but I wasn't going to college. My grades weren't that great. And I finally did pretty well my senior year, but that only put me in the top 75% of the high school class. And that was only because I wanted to make sure I played football and I wrestled. I was a captain of both my teams. And I wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get kicked off the team for bad grades. So business came natural to me. I watched my dad work so hard and taught me how to make money, taught me how to outwork anybody around me. So in high school, when my friends are sitting around the in a study hall and they're all talking about what college they're going to, I was a little bit embarrassed, right? This friend of mine said, you know, where are you going to school, Gary? And this friend of mine was a neighbor, so he kind of knew where I was going. But I said, you know, I'm not going to college. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work. I'm going to either do landscaping or paving. I'm going to start my own business eventually. And, and he kind of chuckled and he goes, see, you're going to be a ditch digger then, huh? And back then, you know, the, the movie Caddyshack came out only a year before, so that was kind of a term that was used in that movie. Looks like my folks won't have enough money to put me through college. Well, the world needs ditch diggers, too. And he goes, the world needs ditch diggers, Ray Bine. And then in front of in the study hall, around a bunch of friends, most of which were going to college, he goes, so Ray Bine's going to be a ditch digger. <laughs> you know, cackling-like, right? I'll just never forget that moment because I was a little embarrassed. So I was partnered with my dad. At first, I was trying to do this to get away from my dad. I loved my dad, but he was a, he was a tough, hard ass of a guy, and he was really tough to work for. My goal was to get away from my dad in a business that he didn't like, and I, f- I figured out, you know, I liked paving, and he didn't like it. So what I said, I want to be the best of the best, you know, and he's like, oh, there's no money in paving. And I'm like, perfect. I'm glad you think so, because I want to go after this business. My goal was to just kick the crap out of anybody in the business, right? I looked to the best people in the marketplace. I watched them. I mimicked them. If I saw a paving crew pave, I was watching them. If I saw a grading crew, I would watch them. I would look at the equipment they're using, time them, figure out how many square feet are they doing per hour. And within five, six years, we were doing better work than them. And we got to be bigger than them within 10 years. Estimating in sales, I always wanted to eat at the restaurants with the worst parking lots, and I'd measure them up and have a price ready for the manager or the owner, you know, after I ate, and I'm, you know, show that I'm a patron. Now that I'm a patron, i got to tell you, your, your parking lot looks terrible. Let me help you out. It was easy sales. The biggest job of my career at the time, the job was about a $50,000 job, so it was really a big deal to me. We're on the job, and I was very conscious that we had an area that was kind of soft in the parking lot. And when that happens, either undercut that area and replace it with dry material, and it takes a long time and it costs a lot of money, or you have to thicken up the pavement to make up for that soft area, right? So instead of a two inches of base asphalt, you go to three inches. So we're doing that base asphalt, and my dad's driving truck, but my dad wasn't really one that, to, to jump out there and pave the parking lot. See, but, but one day he jumped out uh, of the truck waiting for the other truck to dump, and he saw that we were paving a little thick on this job. And he said, uh, holy crap, you guys are paving way too thick there. What are you doing? I said, hey, Dad, don't. Dad, this is purposeful. We're doing this because it's soft here. Bullshit, he says. I, we're, we're not going to pave it that thick. He, he grabs a shovel and starts scraping the asphalt off the surface of the asphalt. I said, whoa, whoa, you got to stop. You're going to mess up this asphalt. And, and he goes, I ain't stopping out there. Come here, help me, guys. And he tells the guys that try to help him. One guy comes out with a shovel. He starts scraping out. I said, no, no, you can't do this. We're just going to have a puddle in this area. It's, it, you see, if, we, if it's two inches here, we still got to go over the, instead of, a, instead of an inch over top, now we got to go, you know, two inches over this. And, you're, and, and it's too thick. You're going to have a pond in here. It compacts more where there's 
two inches adjacent to one inch, right? Anyway, so we're arguing, and, and, and I said, Dad, come here, come here. I pulled him away from the asphalt, and I said, Dad, you got to stay off the asphalt. You don't know what you're talking about. I got this job handled. And he said, we're going to lose our ass on this job. Uh, uh, you, we're going to do what I say. I said, no, we're, you're not. You're going to do what I, you, you, I know what I'm doing out here, man. I, I, this is my job. I know. And he gave me a little shove to get away from me, and I kind of reached him. He went and swung at me, grazed the side of my head. And then we end up, I wrestled him onto a trailer next to us. And all of a sudden, he grabs a chain binder while he's on his back and starts hitting me with a chain binder. A chain binder is a pretty heavy piece of steel with you know two, two chain hooks on each side and a piece of steel in the middle, you know, 15 pounds, whatever it is. He's hitting me in the back with his chain binder. A guy that worked for me jumps in the middle. He's a big dude, so Mike's probably 250, 300 pounds. He breaks us up. And I'm looking at my dad. He's looking at me, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, I look past my dad, and there's this glass wall and it's their cafeteria. I didn't realize it was 12:15, and there's just tons of people. I mean, 100, 150 people up against the glass, and you could see they're excited about this UFC fight. And they didn't have UFC back then, right? But that they're really excited watching this. And I look at him and I look at these people. I'm so embarrassed. I said, "There's no way we're ever going to be partners again after this year." And he says, "Oh, well, you ain't buying me out, and I'm not buying you." I said, "You're going to have to either either you're going to buy me out, or I'm going to buy you out, because I'm never going to be partners with you again after this year." He says, "Baloney, I, you know." You're, we're, we're, you're, you need me as much as I need you. And I said, nope, I, I, I got to tell you, this is not happening ever again. And so it took me all that winter going back and forth with them, hired attorneys and all that kind of stuff, and ended up buying them out in the, in the spring of the year of 1994. And it wasn't the best deal in the world. He thought he got a terrible deal, and I thought I got a terrible deal. Struggled after buying them out to stay in business. I mean, I had, I had some tough times where you know, we, I paid him more money than I made in a, in a year or two. And so either way, we got through it. We, we went from a couple million revenues to six million revenues within you know, five, six, seven years, and that became easier than to pay them off. In the long run, it was a good thing. It took a while, but we eventually made up. You know, I, I just learned over my life that we all get upset about things, but it's such a waste of time and a waste of energy, and it's such a bad thing, in my opinion, for your soul to be mad for any length of time about anything. I mean, you can be bothered by a mistake you might make, because you're only going to learn if you're bothered by a mistake that you make, right? But once you figure out how to fix it, then you should be happy that it was worth the lesson, worth the cost of that mistake, right? If you're a good student, you can take the negative in somebody and say, man, I don't ever want to be that. And there's plenty of positive from that same person. You can say, I want to be like that, right? If you can dissect that in any person, you're going to have some good stuff in your life. Some people would say, you know, that was, that was abusive and that, that wasn't right. It was, that's not a good upbringing. I say, no, baloney, that's a good upbringing. My dad made me tougher. I, I, okay, so I, I bounced later on. When I was 19, 20 years old, I got a bouncing job in the wintertime. So I always worked in the wintertime, factories, whatever it was, to, so I didn't have to dip into my savings. I worked in a bar, in a very busy bar, and I'd get hit in the side of the face, not know it's coming, or right square in the nose, and it'd be like, wow, that was nothing compared to what my dad delivered. <laughs> It prepared me for a lot in life. I could deal with about anybody, even today. Some of the toughest customers that you could ever have, you find out when you get to know them, they're good people, but they're a little scary, you know, bigger, you know, maybe louder or whatever. But usually when you break through, they're like my dad. They got hearts of gold that you can deal with easy once you know them. And a lot of times people are afraid of those that are outspoken. Well, guess what? If they're outspoken, you can figure them out fast and you understand where they stand compared to the person that doesn't say anything, that's afraid to tell you what they're thinking, right? Without my dad, I wouldn't have the work ethic I have. Without my dad, I, I, I'd be afraid to walk into some meetings. Um, I'd be afraid to challenge some people, probably. But uh, because my dad is who he is, he raised me to be outgoing and not afraid of very much. My, mice, I'm afraid of mice, actually, i got to tell you. 
I'm afraid of mice. Besides that, I'm not afraid of much. And, and this unique life preparation that Gary got from his dad has helped him grow his company, the Rabine Group, to $150 million in annual revenue. And their paving operation is the largest in the country. If you have paving, roofing, trucking, snow removal, or pipeline inspection needs, make sure you go to Rabine.com. That's R-A-B-I-N-E.com. After hearing this story, there's no way you'd want to work with anyone else. And by the way, the way he talks about his dad, I just love it because you could have looked at all that and just chalked it up to what a bad dad. But he looked for the good. He looked for what came of it that was positive and wrote the rest off because you're not going to have a perfect dad. It ain't happening. Now, if he was a really horrible guy who added no value, I get it. And some people have those kind of dads. And my goodness, you'd be better off like Eminem just never having known him, right? But for those that don't have perfect dads, but who taught those kind of lessons like hard work and endurance and perseverance, count yourself lucky. When we come back, more of Gary Rabine's story, our American Dreamers series, sponsored by Job Creators Network, continues here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American Dreamers segment and self-proclaimed hillbilly Gary Rabine's story. The final portion continues here. So this poor girl, think about the hillbilly hit on you in a, in a bar in Wisconsin. I was 19 years old, she was 18 years old. I didn't know what to talk about. I was kind of nervous talking to this really pretty girl, right? Real pretty girls maybe didn't talk to me very often, you know. <laughs> but just, not totally the truth, because I, was, I wasn't not too rough looking, but I was definitely hillbilly. Anyway, so I'm talking to her, and within minutes I'm saying, uh, you might have seen the truck when you came in the door. You just see the truck, and she's like, what? I said, my truck, my truck is right next to the door when you walk in, the four by four with the lift kit on and the roll bars. Uh, you know, it's uh, the, the, the truck with a the, with the cool paint job. You know, I, I put everything I had in this Chevy pickup truck. And she goes, uh, I'm really not much into trucks, so I probably wouldn't have seen it, you know. And she's thinking, what, what is this guy about, right? She's, she's looking for a way to get away from me, I'm sure. And I you know, got talking to her more and stuff and, and started getting along with her. But we got married at 21 and 22 years old, had three kids by 26. We stopped having kids because we really didn't think we could afford these kids, right? We had them fast and furious in a little over three years. So we've been married for 33 years now. And Cheryl's been an unfair advantage in a lot of ways. I mean, it's amazing that she had confidence in me because I was really taught by my dad that you're kind of a sissy if you believe in there's a God and all this kind of stuff. Even though my dad grew up as an altar boy and all that, at this point in his life, he was wanting us to be tough. And he, uh, he always taught us that, you know, oh, come on, you don't need God. You got me, you know, you know what do you need a God for? Hey, what kind of sissy are you, right? And uh, it's funny because he's gotten much closer to God in his late years of his life. But Cheryl, when I met Cheryl, was a strong Catholic faith. Her family was really close. They went to church on Sundays. 
We got married in Catholic Church, went to the pre-Cana stuff, the class before, hey, I kind of got it. I was baptized Catholic, and that's about it. But I still didn't really dive into it much. Five, six, seven, eight years later, she kind of gave me an ultimatum. She said, you know, Gary, if you don't want to at least go to church with us once a month or something like that, I'm not sure I'm that crazy about this relationship. You're working seven days a week. You can't even take a day off a month. Could you just do that? And I said, you know what? I can do that. At the time I was partners with my dad, my dad got really bothered by this. I mean, he was really mad at me when I took that first Sunday off. And so him and I got into it, and you know, I quit at one point, and I was going to do something on my own. Then. And bottom line is, he was having a problem. And eventually I said, you know what? I'm taking every Sunday off from now on. Because I kind of like this thing with Cheryl on Sundays. It's kind of neat going to church with the kids. He was really mad for a while about that, and then eventually got over it. But it really probably took me probably even another five or six years before I started to really fall in love with the Catholic faith and, and understand it better. And then through challenges in business and personally, got closer each time. And the biggest challenge we've had, you know, businesses, to me, business is easy. If, if, if I went broke tomorrow, I, I'd figure it out again and I'd jump back and, and get after it again. But health is something you can't control, right? And so my wife had brain cancer two and a half years ago. Brain cancer is a tough one. It's a terminal cancer, and she's doing really well with it today, but it took uh, a long time for her to get back on her feet. Two major operations, brain surgeries in a few days, and she wasn't supposed to live through a lot of it. It was like four different times that she really could have lost her life really easily and, and wasn't expected to get through the second surgery even. So that was a tough time, but in that time, we found so many different things that we know never would have happened in our opinions, right? In my opinion, if it wasn't for God above. And so I became much closer to my face since that time. And she's never once said, why me? Within 24 hours of her being conscious, after being out for a long time, she goes, I know why this happened to me. And I said, what are you talking about? You know what, what do you mean? You know what, why it happened, honey? She goes, uh, I've been reading all the CaringBridge things, and all my emails. Of all the people I pray for every night, there's this handful of people that I pray for just that they would get closer to God. That's all I pray for for them. And every single one of them has responded in an amazing way, saying they never prayed as much in their life as they have since I've been down. She truly believes that that's why this happened to her. And sure enough, everybody we're talking about have gotten their life. It's a pretty neat thing. And I'm confident that without our faith that she's not here today. You know? I'm also confident that this cancer gets you much quicker than it's going to get her. Making money is great, but man, if, if you're fortunate enough that you have relationships, forget about money, relationships that we've created, that we've been able to be a part of, that are there for you in these tough times, that's the most important thing. So by uh, 37, 38 years old, saying, gosh, we could add more kids, we said, maybe someday we'll adopt. And my three, four-year-old daughter in the back seat heard it, and she never shut up about it. She constantly bothers about, we should adopt. When are we going to adopt, right? She never forgot about it. I think that uh, inspiration comes in all different ways, right? We saw this the family was very close to us, and the kids pl played sports with our kids, and all of a sudden they show up at the game with uh, two little kids from Croatia, twin boy and girl, and they're so cute. I, I would always play with them and give them a hard time at the games and stuff and mess with their ears and, and tap them on the shoulder, all that kind of stuff. And my wife and I say, leave those guys alone. I said, no, they're too much fun. They told us a story of how it all went and the adoption. We're like, gosh, that's so cool. They're changing the lives of these little kids. They ended up adopting one more little girl, Christine. 
And uh, same way, cute as can be, a lot of fun, and then we adopted our son Nick right after that. And it was really based on the experience we saw, how their family bonded and got closer than ever. They had one daughter. This daughter was a great big sister to these kids. So we ended up adopting Nick. And since then, we've had people come up and say, you know what, we adopted a little girl, a little boy, because they share your story, right? So it's really neat that that can happen. A life gets, hopefully, put in a, in a position where there's, they have opportunity they would have never had in the environment they're in. You know, our son in Russia, those kids in Croatia. So Christine, the youngest one, is one of our MVPs at our golf club at Bull Valley. I'm a hillbilly that the only reason I could belong to a club is I bought it. They wouldn't accept me there before. She's an amazing kid. Always with a huge smile on her face and just does awesome for us. She's going to probably eventually grow out of that job and want to go somewhere else, but uh, we want to keep her there as long as we can because she's so good. <laughs> it's like having one of my kids there, though, right? I always get a big hug from her every time I see her, and I tell the story often when people are there. I said, see this girl right here? She's one of the reasons we adopted Nick. And Nick could be standing right there with a big smile on his face, our son, and he knows the story, too. It's fun stuff. When you can do things like this in, in life, it's a blessing to be able to do that, right? My wife is a saint, but her biggest concern when we were adopting was she was all worried, like really, really worried about one thing. Will she love him as much as she loves our other three kids? Because if she can't, she won't be able to forgive herself. I said, Cheryl, you're going to love him no matter what. We're going to love this kid. If we love our other kids just a little bit more, we're never going to tell him, right? So what are you worried about? He's going to have a great life with parents that love him. If it's a little bit less, then it's a little bit less, right? I'm not worried a bit. So sure enough, uh, she's, well, I'm not happy with that. If it's, just a, if it's a little less, I'm not, I'm not going to be happy. I'm going to be bothered for the rest of my life if that's the case. I said, don't sweat it. You'll be fine, right? And it was like six months later because this little guy was a challenge. He was cute as can be and funny as can be, but he was not easy. He had some baggage that came with him. But within about six months, I come home one day, and she's as happy as can be. And I'm saying, what, what's up, man? You look like you had a great day. She goes, I realized today that I love him every bit as much as I love our three. I said, come on, I knew that all along. I've loved him since day one, you know. And, but she's the one really spending the time with him, taking care of him, going through all the issues with him. My wife did a ton of work to figure out his neuro issues and all that, and Nick is a normal guy today. I mean, he's really a normal guy. Also, my other three kids are definitely were driven closer together because of him, right? So bringing him in when my kids were early teens, they bonded with him a bunch, and they became closer because they had this little life in there, and this little brother that they all bonded around. He's been a blessing. These kids all know how to work. They understand work ethic, understand what it takes to get up and consistently get up to get to a job. As long as I can give them that, I think I'm giving them a better gift than a lot of other things. They don't need my wife or I ever again. I mean, if something happened to me and I lost every bit of money I have and every bit of my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They're going to make probably more money than I ever made that I could ever give them anyway. That's a good feeling. My son, Nick, he's got that Russian work instinct. It's pretty wild, but the kid, ever since he came here, two and a half, three years old, if I was working in the yard, he was working next to me. And he would be mad if it was raining out, he had to go inside. Now, this last summer at 17, he worked on our cruise, shoveling asphalt and laboring, and, and he loved it. He came home with a big, dirty as heck with a big smile on his face every day. He will do well in a job, whatever job he picks, because he'll focus on it, and he'll outwork people around him. And I just think that's the best gift you can give a kid. And if, you, and if they're super smart academically and they can be doctors and lawyers or whatever it is professionally, that's awesome too. But without work ethic, again, they're, they're not going to be the best of that either, right? So I, I think it's giving them a sense of whatever they're passionate about, driving themselves to be the best, hardest working person there is in that passion that they love. And if they can do that, they're going to be happy people.
And what a great story and what a unique voice. And if you enjoy Gary Rabine's voice, you'll love his podcast that's called Ditch Digger CEO. Just search for the Ditch Digger CEO wherever you get your podcasts. I love the end there when he was talking about that work ethic. He was, was teaching his kids. And he had said, if something happened to me and my fortune, my kids are going to kick butt. They'll make more money than me. And I think so many of us as parents, we want to make sure that we get those kids to self-sufficiency, away from entitlement and into work and a work ethic. Because that's the best thing you can do for your kids. And I think more and more parents are coming to understand that in this age of entitlement and this age of overprotective parents. Uh, we're not really helping. And I think we all know that, those of us who do it. And I think we all do it a little bit too much. Gary Rabine's story, Our American Dreamers segment here on Our American Stories. And again, send your American Dreamers stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Someone in your town, someone you know, who built something from nothing. Again, this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.